Welcome to Genesis Community Church. On behalf of the elders, deacons, members, anyone who considers this their church home, we want to say thanks for joining us this morning. If you weren't able to join us this morning in person, if you're watching online, very glad to have you as well. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. I didn't say my name is Hans. There it is. If I did say it, you've heard it twice. So you'll remember. And as we have gone through Exodus, been grateful for you guys because it's, you know, if you're reading along with us or you're, you've gone through our reading plan and you've kind of been exposed to the book of Exodus now, maybe you've discussed it in D group or you're discussing it in your community groups, uh, there's a lot going on here. In fact, there's always more. Every sermon leaves things on the cutting room floor. Like you just don't get through any, everything you could have gotten through any time. You go, man, that would be a great thing to talk about, but, or that'd be a great thing to talk about. So unless you guys want a 45-hour sermon, um, which I'm guessing, I mean, my kids gave me a limit when they got here this morning. They were like, do not go past. All right, buddy. So usually they're in the back of the room waving me down once their emotional clock strikes zero. So it's very, very helpful for my children to do that for me. It makes me feel great as well. Uh, so there was this time I was a uh, college student. I don't know if I was a college student or a high school student. I think I was a high school student. And I went on a mission trip to Monterey, Mexico. And I was asked to you know, give the, you know, the message through a translator. And when you do that, I don't know if you've been in that situation, but when you do that, uh, at least as a high schooler <clears throat> or college student, doesn't really matter, pretty sure it's high school, you just kind of lean back on anything you've heard somebody say in the past. Because I'm not coming up with my own stuff. I never am anyways, even this. But, like, I'm not, I don't know what to say. So I just do what other people do. You know, yeah, I go, okay, well, I've heard this preacher say this before, or this guy say this, or they do it like that. And so you kind of slowly get through your presentation, and you feel like you've really crushed it. You know, like, he's like, man, that was, that was awesome. Like, if they're not just, you know, coming to faith in droves, that's their problem because it's not the presenter. That's how you feel as a high schooler. So, you know, you give, as a high schooler, some altar call through a translator. You don't, you know, you're borrowing somebody else's sermon to do it. And, you know, you expect, like, you know, just mass repentance, everybody, because, of course, you're just stepping out in faith and you're, you're doing what God, you're doing the Lord's work. Right? I mean, it's the Lord's work. It's how, you, it's how you convince yourself. And so you realize then, you know, it's time to speak of Jesus. You could be riding in the car with your neighbor or having a conversation. And you know, it's time to speak of Jesus. You know, you, you know it. And so sometimes we shrivel up and die at that moment. We're like, well, you know, I really need to wash the car. I've never washed the car in my life, but... I think I need to wash the car. But you begin to tell people, what, in any instance, what Jesus has done for them. You begin to say, this is what Jesus has done for you. He came for you. He died for you. In him you can have life. Like, like you can be new. Do you want to be new? And you're just sure. You're sure that in so doing that, everything is going to work out. You're confident in that. Because we use phrases like this, like God's word doesn't return what? Void, yeah, you guys know it if you've been, you know, in Sunday school long enough. Like, you know, God's word doesn't return void. And so in that, we just assume if I use the Bible, 
Like, I'm going to see a return immediately. If I'm going to talk about the things God has done, then immediately I should see some kind of evidence of that in the room with the people. William Carey, who is the, many would say, the founder of the Protestant missions movement. Not the founder of missions, but the Protestant missions movement. He had this phrase, uh, expect great things and attempt great things. So you expect that God will do things. You're looking for it, right? That's the faith element. Like, the Lord does things and attempts great things. Because why not? So you do that. But like, and then what if nothing happens? What if nothing happens? You're sure of it. You've gone. You've done the work. You've put it in, be it through a translator, to your neighbor, over the fence, whatever the conversation may be, right? You're so confident that you, you attempted something great and you're expecting God to move and then silence. You wait. You gave it your all. You stepped out in faith and now you're waiting for conversion because, of course, God's word doesn't return void, so I would expect there to be some kind of conversion in this moment. And it doesn't happen. You do it again and it doesn't happen. You know, you're, you're talking to your kids and you say, hey, this is why we do this. And this is how we engage. And this is, what we, this is why we pursue Jesus. And this is what our family does. And this is how we read the scriptures. And they're like, can your sermon be done by this time? Don't care about the other stuff. And you go, yes, it can did you not hear anything else I said? And they go, nope. And it really can get you discouraged, exasperated, frustrated. You know, maybe you're in your D group and you're like, it's time for me to tell, you know, so-and-so in my life. We've been praying for him or we've been praying for her and I just know it's time to talk to them. And so pray for me. I'm going to go talk to them. And so everyone's cheering you on, right? We're going to pray for this, right? The Lord is there. He's in it. You're there. And you go. And now you've ruined a relationship. And you just go, this, this isn't supposed to happen. You know, well, just last week, we talked about how obedience is really a spiritual battle. It's our, our heart for God and honoring Him and what He said. And what might come of it outcome is really not ours to know. How that might, you know, perhaps there are people who come to faith. Perhaps there's no one who comes to faith. Perhaps you're persecuted. You just don't know what's going to happen after you step out in obedience. But honestly, probably in a sense because we're Americans and we're just used to getting better at stuff, we just expect that when we step out in faith, there's going to be some kind of mass return. Like everyone's going to, you know, our churches are going to go get bigger and our reach or our platform is going to get bigger and more people are going to like us. Why? Because, of course, like Christians are upwardly mobile people. I'm like, no, Americans are upwardly mobile people. Like Christians are downwardly mobile. That's our move, right? Like the greatest will become the least. That's the movement Jesus gives us. But we kind of combine these two worlds together and assume that if we step out in faith, it's going to have some kind of amazing results here and now. And when it doesn't, it can be really screwy because it messes with what you actually believe is true. It changes how you handle life. It changes, you know, well, did I actually believe that God said that? 
last week, you know, when Jesus, did, when Jesus says, you'll be persecuted because of me. Like, yeah, but really, like, not really. I mean, he's just saying maybe. Like, there's probably a maybe in the Greek text if you look at it. Well, in a moment of frustration, even in our obedience, where do we go? And what do we do? And what do we remember? Today's passage is going to show us in the continual development of Moses and his relationship with God, and Aaron is going to be a part of this as well as we get into the plagues more prominently, we get to see what the continual frustration of Moses and the constant grace of God speaking to him about what he says he's done. And you don't get this angry dad voice of God going, you should know this by now. Which is what I would expect. I mean, Moses is an 80-year-old man. Let's not forget that. Like, you should know this by now, Moses. You're 80. Right? Remember the Oklahoma State? Like, I'm a man. I'm 40. Right? Like, like he's twice that now. He's 80. So whatever you were at 40 when you're like, hey, take it out on me. Like, now you're 80. You should know that twice better. And yet that's not how the Lord does it. So Exodus chapter 5. The passage on the preaching calendar is 22 through 627. But really that last section is not a lot we're going to cover today because the last section is a genealogy that is, is kind of put there. It might feel odd as you're reading the narrative, but it's put there because we're about to get into the plagues. And it's, again, just this evidence that these guys are priestly. They're priestly guys, and they're doing the work of the Lord as he has called them. And so you have this kind of move of frustration in God's response. And then right after that, before we get into the plague cycles that are coming very soon, there's just this reminder to the reader of, let's not forget who these guys are. And let's not forget how important they are. Because at this point in the story, remember, you're not reading it, you're probably hearing it. You're not reading this like we do. This is all being read to you. You can probably lose a little confidence in the guy. (laughs) You can go... Is he really God's guy? Is he the guy that God called? And, and, and does he have a right to even do the things that he's doing? Because it's not going well. And so that genealogy in verses 14 through 27 that, that's there in chapter 6, that's really a, a, an affirming statement about who these guys are, specifically Aaron, actually, in that. So that's, that's there, kind of in between our pivot over to the plague declarations and then what will begin the plague cycles. But let's look at the passage. I'm going to read 522 through 613. Sounds like this. Right after this moment of frustration and the Hebrew foreman are mad at Moses and Aaron, we read in verse 22 of chapter 5, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people And you have not delivered your people at all. What is he saying? You have not done what you said you would do. You gave us a promise. You haven't delivered. You haven't delivered us and you haven't delivered on your promise. You haven't done what you said you'd do. You ever been mad at God like that? There we go. You you said this was going to work. You told me, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your, on your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. Like, 
And now nothing's working. But listen to the Lord, chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. With a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. You might have heard it as like El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners, but they're not back at it yet. Remember, they're in Egypt. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you back as my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And that's when we get in then to the genealogy of how, where these people came from and why they are the ones fit to do the job that God has called them to. But there's such doubt about them that that's why this, this genealogy is placed right there at the end of chapter 6. Let's not forget who these people are. There's a lot going on in this passage, and it's funny because if, if you've gone through our reading plan or you have been discussing this in our community groups, to this point, you might find that there are several themes to the book of Exodus to this point as we get into you know, now chapter 6, which is God's given a call. That call is based upon God fulfilling the promises that he gave to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. In fact, if you just want to take a pencil or a pen, if you're, if you're a Bible marker, and take your few pages of Exodus that we've gone through right now, mine's only you know, like six pages, and just circle the amount of times you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in there, it's going to remind you that this is about what God has already promised long before Moses was even alive. God was doing a work to establish a nation for a people from whom the whole world would be blessed. So this is all, this, this book of Exodus is about God doing in salvation history the next step of that work, the next movement of that work, which is there's been a promise, there's been a people, that people are now becoming a nation, but they don't have a home. And they're about to 
be given into their home, but they have to be delivered from their slavery in order to do it. Do you hear some parallels to our life in Jesus? Do you hear some things like that, that the Lord has a place that he is bringing about a new heaven and a new earth, but those who are here on this earth, in order to get there, have to be freed from their own bondage in order to be able to get to the place that God has promised, to have the relationship with God that he has promised. And so God has to actually free us. And in order to do that, he sends the Son into the world in order to deliver us from his sins. You should see these themes, these connections, because they're clear. Though God was moving in time and in place and in space to save the nation of Israel from their bondage, we can look back at this and go, oh my gosh, he does this for everyone in his Son. He does this for everyone. And so we get to look at what's happening here in Exodus chapter 5, end of chapter 5, end of chapter 6, and it sounds like we're dealing with the same thing, which is I'm not fit for this, I'm not the guy for this, I'm not sure. And then the Lord's going, I've already said this is going to happen, and I gave a promise way before you. So it's not about me making you happy, Moses. It's about me fulfilling the promise I gave before you were even around You weren't even a glimmer in your mother's eye. Your mother wasn't around. This is long before you. And that's what we need to remember is that even for you and for me here, now some 3,000 plus, almost 3,500 years removed from this, that, that we are a part of what God is doing to bring about new heaven and new earth and new life, restored bodies. That in that time, God has revealed more and we see more and we get to look back and go, there's so much more. There's so much more. And we get to see how God is unfolding this here in this moment. But back to where we are in the moment, God has gotten, or Moses and Aaron have gone before Pharaoh. It did not go well. And now they turned back to the Lord with their frustrations, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Why have you done this evil, evil to this people? Why did you send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has, not, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now Moses' language is precise here. <clears throat> He's basically acquitting himself of what's going on. Ever since I did what you told me to do, I've done it. And all it's been is bad, and you haven't done what you said you'd do. I did what you told me to do. You love the blame shifting, right? Like, that's always what happens. Like, when I watch my kids, or really when you watch adults, too. It doesn't really matter. You just kind of revert. I did my part. You didn't do your part. So what happens in this moment? Well, first, when things don't go according to plan, he's frustrated by the result. There's that doubt again. Doubt and blame. I failed at this mission. I'm frustrated by it. But also, you didn't do your part. Why did you send me is the frustration with God's choice. Why did you send me? Because this is embarrassing. And it's not working. Frustration with God's choice. But then there's frustration with God's inaction. You have not delivered. But can we remember something? Didn't the Lord tell Moses, I mean, let's just think back. Didn't the Lord tell Moses that Pharaoh will not let you go unless he is 
you know, has to drive you out. Like he has to remove you. There's going to be signs and wonders and works. And there's already been this declaration of the firstborn. Like, this has all been foreshadowed. It's all been said. But what is, what is Moses doing? Uh, he's had a little bit of, you know, selective amnesia, like many of us do. You didn't deliver us. I went up in front of the guy. I said the words, and you didn't do your part. So why'd you send me? I think you made the wrong decision. Why haven't you acted? You're not being faithful. And these are two accusations that we can often bring before God when things don't go our way. Why is this happening to me? And where the heck are you? Now, there's a positive aspect to what Moses is doing here. So let's not forget that. Because if you look at 22, Moses turned to the Lord and he said these things. Moses didn't turn to Aaron. He didn't turn to his friends. He didn't turn to the elders of Egypt and start getting frustrated about it. So he knew better, I think. And he went to the person that could address the frustration that he had. And that's an important move for us because it is not that your life in Christ is going to be without frustration, without disappointment, and without discouragement. In fact, that's going to become a pretty consistent theme all the while there being joy. But you'll find yourself frustrated because of your own sin, because of the way you've been treated, because of the way you've treated others. Like You'll be frustrated there. You'll be discouraged because things haven't gone as you thought they should go. You'll have all of these things going on in your life. And there's a place you should go with it. The Lord. <clears throat> and so even though Moses is bringing a list of complaints and, in a sense, accusations against God, <clears throat> that's the right person to bring it to. Why? Because he can take it. He can take it. He doesn't, it's not like he's unaware of how you feel. It's not like he's unaware of your doubts or your concerns or your worries or your frustrations. And so Moses does the right move because you haven't owned up to your part of the plan, and I have. But there's another thing Moses has in this bit of doubt and frustration, and that's impatience. The impatience is that selective amnesia. He, the Lord said, this is how it's going to go. Pharaoh will not listen to you. He will not listen to you. Prophets have been given this same kind of charge. You're going to go prophesy like Isaiah. You're going to go speak, but they're not going to listen they're going to hear you, but not hear you. You go, great. You know, it's like, here's your job description. You're going to say things that are true, and no one's going to care. Like, and I just have to do that for, like, what, like five minutes? Like, no, really, forever. You just do it. You keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you keep doing it, and you don't worry about the fact that it's not going to happen. No one's going to listen. So there's this doubt and this frustration that is brought on in these first two verses. And then you have the contrast as you get into verses really six or one through nine. Six, one through nine, there's that paragraph there, there's two paragraphs. <clears throat> and there's this intro reminder. Now, what God does to combat the, the frustration is he really shows very little concern for how Moses feels. <laughs> It doesn't meet Moses in his frustration. All he does is respond to Moses with what is true. So there's no coddling here. 
Verse 1 of chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So that's that kind of summary statement of what is true. There's this main reminder, and that's what happens for the first really five verses. There's this main reminder. You're going to leave the land in verse 1, and then in 2, 3, and 4, he goes back to the covenant. God spoke to Moses and said, I'm the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your forefathers, people long before you. I've appeared to them, but they didn't know me as, they only knew me as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known. Is like ever-present, always there, the one who will act. So, this, so they've known him in one way, and he's revealing further how he's going to act in their lives. So they've known me as this. They haven't known me as you've known me, which is about to move in power and be there and deliver. They've seen me in one sense. They haven't seen me as you will. Not that he's changed, but that we know more about who he is. And that's important because you might hear that and go, oh, so God just, you know, maybe, maybe some other religion knows him as this God and some other religion knows him as this God and that's okay. But that's not what's going on here because he doesn't get inconsistent. He doesn't change how he speaks. He doesn't change his promises. He doesn't change what he cares for. But rather, our understanding of who he is becomes fuller. He doesn't shift. He's not like, okay, well, now I'm going to reroute. Now I'm this guy, you know, new game plan. All the same game plan. So we have this establishment. The revelation of this guy as, 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 a, as, a, as a new, as a provider, Yahweh. I am who I am. I am that covenant-keeping, covenant-making, powerful God who will act. And then he says in verse 4, I established my covenant. Not their covenant. I established my covenant, my promise with them. To give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they had lived as sojourners. They were there prior. There was some sojourning in the land, but there wasn't the land as an inheritance. That's why it's there. So if you get confused on that, that's because there were some wanderings of the forefathers that had them in. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like they, they had them in and around the land. But they had not actually inherited the land. That's why he's saying they were sojourners in the land. So we go back to promise. He goes, I'm the Lord. Watch what I'm about to do. He goes backwards to go forward. Backwards is remember the promise. Now he's going to go back into the present time. And he says, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So I'm this God. I've heard the cries of my people. I'm going to act consistently with the covenant that I made but then, there's a flip. There's a flip in verses 6 through 8. And now we move forward in time. So there we went past, then we went present. I've heard their groaning, I remembered my covenant, and now we're going future. Look what happens here. Say to the people of Israel, this is verse 6, I am the Lord. Now look at the tense. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'll bring you out 
from the heavy work that you're doing as slaves in Egypt. I will, will bring you out. The second one, I will deliver you from slavery to them. The third one, I will redeem you, buy you back, bring you back with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Those acts of judgment are the plagues that are coming against the nation of Egypt for not believing what God had said and what he was doing. And so I will, I will redeem you and then I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And then he goes back to the land promise that was earlier in the covenant. And then I will bring you into the land I swore, and we go past tense again, I said that I would give to your fathers, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. It gets through 8. In verse 9, of course, we have what? Disbelief again. They don't believe him. We'll get to that. So remember this, remember this process. God's speaking to Moses. He goes back in time to say, remember what I've said. And remember the promises I've made. Then he goes to present time to go, I've heard you. Then he moves into the future and goes, I will, I will do this. And that phrase is so important because it shows us that God acts consistently. It shows us that God does not change his plans. He's not like, ugh, you know. And then he turns to the sun. He's like, hey, can we, do, can we do the escape plan now, which is sending you? No, but before the foundations of the earth, the sun was coming into the world. And so there's not this huge adjustment in the plan. God acts consistently. What have I said? And now they cry out in keeping with his promise. You, Lord, we're your people. Please deliver us. Though they were probably living in their own paganism and they were, they were having the gods of Egypt around them. They were not necessarily these faithful followers of Yahweh, these worshipers of Yahweh all the time because the, e- Egypt had upwards of, over time, 1,500 to 2,000 identified different gods. You don't think that does a number on the nation that's living in the land, trying to, you know, serve as slaves? Like, like that's... So he's still, though, acting consistently with who he is. He hears their cry, and he says, I will do these things. Now, today, you don't get, you don't get delivered from the land of Egypt, but you do get delivered from your bondage. You do get delivered from your sin. You do get free from your slavery. In fact, the, the, the book of Romans would say, really, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. That's, that's, that's really where you are. But there is this thing that's true, as we even see here as God is speaking, is that if you cry out to God, he acts consistently with how he's spoken, which is if you cry out to him and put your faith in his son and the work of his son, he will deliver you. He will save you. He will sanctify you. He will redeem you. 
because of what he has already done. Because of the blood of Jesus that has already been shed. Because of the resurrection which ensures our own. He acts consistently. So we have these four promises. In fact, the four promises in Exodus 6, 6 and 7 are still used today in Passover seders. Did you know that? The Passover seders often use four cups, like the modern Passover celebration that you might see, use four different cups. And these four different cups, it's interesting, are tied to these statements given in Exodus chapter 6. So they use, the God will bring them from their burdens, the, the cup of sanctification is what they would call it, that there's this, this setting aside, you're, you're mine, and I'll bring you from this, the cup of sanctification. That I will deliver you from your slavery, they'd call it the, the cup of deliverance. That I will redeem you, they call it the cup of redemption. And I will take you as my people, they call it the cup of praise. So it's interesting how in Exodus 6, 6, and 7, you are seeing promises that even Jewish people today will speak of and remember and use as a part of their Passover celebration. Now, there are some who would say that those four cups are being used even in Christ's time. So you'll find some really sharp people who will say, absolutely, and you'll find some really sharp people who go, I'm not so sure we don't know for sure if that's how Jesus participated in the Passover with his disciples. They would often say something like, oh, well, he was in the cup of redemption when he said, here's the cup, and they, you know, that's now our communion, or something like that. And we just don't know for sure. But what we do know confidently is that these promises given about what God will do, Jewish people still take very seriously. And they still remember what he said he was going to do. That these interwoven promises are still significant for the nation. And, and they're significant for us. And they're, they're significant for us in this reason, for this reason. Because as we think of Jesus and the work he has done we actually see these promises fulfilled or beginning to be fulfilled. And the reason I say it like that is because the Christian life isn't over. If everything that we talk about is past tense, then we're missing out on a lot of what God has still promised. There's still a world that's going to be recreated with no sin. Let's not forget that. I get a resurrected body that's not going to ache or break down. No illness, no pain, no suffering. The Lord is my comforter. I get that. We get that. And so we can't be speaking always of this is perfectly, totally, it's donezo, like we're good forever. Because there's still things the Christian looks forward to. There's still things we long for that are significant, and I would even say imperative for how we live life today. But as you look at those promises of what God said he will do for the nation, in fact, he does, doesn't he? As you continue on in the book of Exodus, what does he do? He frees them from Egypt. He delivers them from their slavery. 
He redeems them as his people. After the plague of the firstborn, which is the final straw which sends the nation out, that they're, they're bought back through the plagues. He redeems them and then brings them, takes them as his people, and they can worship and celebrate him. Jesus has taken the, the Christian from his or her sins. He brought him out. I'll bring you out from under your burdens. He's done that. Jesus has delivered us from the consequences of those sins. I will deliver you from your slavery. That relationship has been severed. It's not like he's just extended the chain so we can kind of live more freely. He's actually severed the relationship of us to sin. Jesus, the only son of God, died for us. And through that, redeems us. And through Jesus, we are brought into a relationship with God so that we are His. And we long for the day when we are a new heaven, new earth, people filled with worshipers. And so we see even in Exodus 6, as we look at it now, we go, my gosh, God's still doing this. He did it and he's doing it. He's moved and he's moving. He's saved and he's saving. He's delivered and he's delivering. That he hasn't stopped. And it's glorious. And it's such good news that, of course, in verse 9, like Moses would, Moses speaks to the people and expects them to be really glad, and they don't listen to him. What? I mean, I mean, it's served up as the best possible news, and they say, no. Why? Because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Huh. Huh. Do you think there are times that, that maybe you are discouraged and don't listen to the things that are true? Because you've just been caught up in living in this world? And you've really just allowed it to affect you to the point that you are unconcerned about the true things. I mean, I have this conversation sometimes with people, or maybe you've had this conversation with people, where like, don't tell me I'm doing, I'm doing something wrong, I already know it. Don't tell me it's wrong, I already know. Don't tell me that's a sin, I already know. I'm like, I don't think you know, because if you knew, you wouldn't do it. And even that response is the response of a hard-hearted person. Like, if you knew... If you knew that you had cancer, 
I use that because it's, it affects so many lives. If you knew you had cancer, and you knew that it could be treated, and you walked around going, don't tell me I could treat it, I already know it could be treated. If that's how you actually pursued it, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't somebody look at you a little, a little cross-eyed and go, wait, so you know that you can be freed? You know that you can be healed from this? And I know that this does not work every time, clearly. You know there's a path? <laughs> but you don't want me to tell you there's a path because you're already aware of it, but you're also not going to take it? But that's what happens when we are beaten down by our sins. We no longer hear what is true. We no longer respond to it favorably. We no longer resonate with those statements that God has given and God makes and that God is faithful to continue to make. We no longer live like that. And so the cycle is repeated. Verse 10, so the Lord <clears throat> said to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out from the land. But Moses said, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. What? Now he's being affected by the nation who's being affected by their slavery. You see how this all, like, the way you respond to what is true affects the way that I respond to what is true. You see that? I go, man, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, everybody else says I'm wrong. Maybe I am wrong. It starts to get into your head, doesn't it? And that's what's going on in this moment. Yet God still faithfully is, we're going to get into those plagues. It's going to get wild, right? Like, it's really, so things are going to start happening where you just go, what in the world? Piles of dead frogs as far as the eye can see. Like, that starts to happen. Moses goes, they haven't listened to me. You think Pharaoh's going to listen to me? I'm on, of an, I'm, I am of uncircumcised lips. I can't speak correctly. But the Lord, here it is. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And so again, what do you have the Lord going? I've already said it. It's time. It's time. I know you don't feel ready. I know you don't feel qualified. I know you're frustrated. I know the people aren't listening to you. I know Pharaoh's not listening to you. It's time. It'll happen. Then the genealogy. These people are the people that the Lord has called to the job. So as we get into... What will happen, we'll have a plague kind of preface, and then we'll go through several Sundays of plagues themselves, because what we will start to see is, is in a sense, this kind of increasing confidence as you see God move. And you go, oh, wait a minute. He did say this was going to happen. He did say this was going to work. He did, he, he did say he was going to act. And so they start to see this. And Moses and Aaron start to act differently before Pharaoh. 
It's kind of what my, my doubts are not there in the same way. Now, they come back in the wilderness wanderings, and there's a lot of like, why did you send me? Why did we do this? So it's not like everything's in your, out in the clear and all good now. But there is this shift as you begin to see the way God acts. And I want to remind you, Christian, in the room, remember the way God acts. And sometimes you might have to be the one in your small group, in your discipleship group, talking to your friend at lunch and say, hey, that's not true. God is good. God is near. God is present. God does care. Because you can stand on that. In fact, what you will see for the rest of the book is that the things God said would happen, happen. Regardless of the wavering doubts of everyone around him, the things God said would happen, happen. So we shouldn't run from him. We should remember him and we should praise him. Because he has moved and he will move. Let's cry out, let's praise, let's remember, let's speak, let's do that. Because God is faithful. He responds, and he moves, and he acts, and he saves.